You know, this time of year is very special. It's special to me because uh, growing up, um, those of you those of you who know, uh, we lost a lot of people in our family. So our family was naturally like pretty small. And Christmas time, Thanksgiving time, this this time of year was a really good opportunity to just spend time with one another. Now I have two other brothers where. Uh, two years apart uh, between me and Casey, and then I'm four years betwa- uh, apart between me and Cody. So we would get on each other's nerves quite a bit and share this story with you. One, one Christmas, my dad thought it was a brilliant idea to let everybody sleep in my room. And we were old enough to get into trouble. And, you know, when the door closes, it's supposed to be you're going to sleep. Pfft, yeah, fat chance. Well, we had three mattresses in there. I don't know what my dad was thinking. He probably just wasn't thinking. But we were jumping on the mattresses and all sorts of stuff. And I got the bright idea to toss the mattress at my brother. And it missed and hit my closet door. And those of you who know these closet doors, they just hang on the top. It's very easy for them to come down and make a huge crash and everything. You know, I didn't get blamed for that. My brother got a spanking for that. That's a really sweet Christmas memory. Um, It's a great gift to me, personally. Uh, But one of the Christmas memories I, I have is Christmas Eve when we would come here to Calvary Community Church. Now, we do the candlelight service on a Wednesday to give people time to be here because I know schedules are busy. But back in that time when I was growing up, it was, it was really something to see. And I would come here and it would be late. Do you remember the Christmas Eve things would start like at 11, 11.30? There'd be special music and we would walk in with my family and we'd sit down and I'd just hear Dr. Lindstrom teach the word. And it was just a great thing, you know, and I, I was probably 14 or 15 years old when I really got a hold of those things, and I started to realize how important the Word is. You know, I grew up, the songs start playing, you start watching the Christmas favorite movies, all of that, you're baking cookies and all that stuff, and you get into this, this, this spirit of Christmas is what people call it, and they're like, man, I'm just happy now, and things are really good, and you're shopping, specifically looking for people for gifts for them and things like that. But then it seems like when the calendar changed, the new year was really barren and, and just dry. It was like, oh, we got a whole nother 12 months ahead of us until we can get that feeling again. But the Christmas Eve services reminded me that this is not just a time of year. We're celebrating our way of life. We're celebrating our identity, who we are in Christ. I didn't get that, you know, growing up. Not to say that was any fault of my upbringing, but it's just, it's not until you come into real good, clear, consistent Bible teaching that you realize how blessed you are. I got to teach in the college this semester in both semesters, which is kind of rare. I usually teach in the summer, or excuse me, in the spring, because in the fall, we got the Christmas stuff going on, we've got the missions conference, but this year we didn't have a missions conference. And so I signed up for teaching, and I taught through the book of 1 John. And I had just taught verse by verse in the church, but the church and the college, those are, it's two different approaches. Really, with the church setting, you want to be plain, understandable. You don't want to spend a ton of time on a bunch of things. But in the college, we had a lot of different source material that we pulled from, and we combined all these different things. But one of the most important things in 1 John is in chapter 5, where it talks about the record that God has given about his son. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 is a very controversial verse. A lot of people think it's not supposed to be in the Bible. A lot of people believe that it is supposed to be in the Bible, and these two groups are very antagonizing towards each other. 
But you, you, you come to find that 1 John 5, 7, and really all the way into verse 13, you know 1 John 5, 13. But it's one of the most important statements about the Trinity testifying to Jesus Christ as being the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And I think that's missed in the controversy of 1 John 5, 7. I'm telling you this because not only is it the title, Christ the Lord, but it's important to recognize how much emphasis the Scripture places on Jesus being the Christ. There were a lot of people who followed Jesus' ministry and believed that he was a prophet. And I'm telling you, they believed it as much as you and I believe that he's the Son of God. They followed after him. They brought their sick. They brought their needy. They brought their maimed and disfigured in full expectation that this prophet from God could heal them. And they're right partially, but they end up missing the whole reason as to why he's here. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who would redeem the world from all of, excuse me, pay for all the sins of the world. And you can see how crafty and tricky the human nature is. You and I can deceive ourselves very easily. You know, just look at your credit card purchases this month. You, you, you've made some decisions where you go, yeah, that sounds good. February comes around, that bill comes to you, you're like, I don't really know if, I, if we needed to do that. Oh, hang on a sec. Is this plugged in? I think so. We'll find out. If it dies, it dies. It's saved. It's going to heaven. We prayed over it. <laughs> no, but you, you know, we can make decisions pretty easily that deceive ourselves. And I always think it's interesting when you look at major world religions, and I'm talking about the big five, outside of the Christian cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and stuff like that. All these major Eastern religions, they do recognize some type of deity in, in, in Jesus. Some type. It's a very low type. One of the ones that I'm seeing a lot right now is in Islam. That they, If, if any of you have been in an Islam community or an Islam service, I went to one when I was in college, and it was interesting. A um, lot of ritual, which is very attractive to the human nature. Repetition, that's pretty natural. But in our discussion with the imam, and this was right across the street, I don't think it's there anymore, but in our discussions with the imam, we, we would always hear either like when Moses' name is mentioned or Abraham or Jesus, we'd hear this phrase, peace be upon him. You guys know what I'm talking about? And sometimes they'll abbreviate it. I don't remember exactly what the abbreviation is, but they'll say it in an effort to just get it out quicker. But they say that of prophets of Allah. Now, it's interesting because they accept that Jesus is a prophet sent from God, but they reject the saving faith. What is that saving faith? That he is the Son of God. It's a core tenet in Islam that God is one and he has no son. Now, that, why would there be a distinction that the God of Islam has no son. Why would there be a distinction there? Because that's where the power is, folks. Not that's where the power of God is, but that's how man can become reconciled to God by God sending his son. And the scripture talks about this. And even in modern religions today, you know, you look at the Catholic Church. We're about to read Mary's uh, prayer here. And it's interesting because when um, when when Zachariah, John the Baptist's um, dad, when he makes his statement, it says the Spirit came upon him and he prophesied. Elizabeth just got done saying her piece too, which starts there in 
about uh, verse 39. She talks about all of these things that had happened to her. And then Mary, she's going to reflect, but from what the scripture shows here, this is just Mary speaking. So even though she was a young woman in her culture, she evidently knew enough about the promise that was said to be upon her, that as a virgin she would bear um, Jesus. And she understood the significance of this for her people. And I want you to understand how important that statement is for her people because Israel is in, they're in suffering at this point. It's not to the degree of the Babylonian captivity, which is where you get the writings of like Jeremiah. By the way, you read some of the descriptions in Jeremiah and in Lamentations and in Isaiah, and you see how much the Jewish people have suffered. And look at what we're dealing with right now in our country since October 7th. It's been embroiled in this fight, and there's been bloodshed, and there's people are taking sides, and it's coming into our college campuses, which, by the way, it's not, this did not just come in. This has been there for a long time, and now these professors and administrators, they have the boldness that they need to start speaking the truth. But we see all this going on, and we say, what's the focus with the Jewish people? Why are they always in suffering? Why are they always in some type of bondage. They have rejected God. Now they say, they say that they love God. And you go look at Hasidic Jews and you'll see these people sacrifice their way of life so that they can be accepted by God. But we saw what the Pharisees did to Jesus. They're the ones that changed the minds of the people and ended up, they, and think about this for a moment. The Pharisees were able to change the people's mind from Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us now, to just in five days, crucify him, crucify him. And they did crucify him, and they let Barabbas go. The convicted thief, they let him go. And so you can see how significant it is that Jesus is the Son of God, and Israel, at the time of this great announcement, had just gone through 400 years of nothing. No prophet. It's just 400 years of silence, And all of a sudden, this big event happens. What was that big event that kicked it off? John the Baptist being prophesied as as being born. And that was through um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah ministered in the temple. We talked about this in the first part of the series. Now things are beginning to change. I don't know how many people were actually paying attention. But certainly, after John the Baptist's birth and then Jesus' birth, when John the Baptist grew up and began to baptize people with water... People were paying attention. I just want to refresh your mind before we look at Mary's prayer here, how weird it was that John the Baptist was doing the baptizing. It was very uh, acceptable, common practice when you were going to go to the temple as a Jewish person that you would have to bathe yourself. And it, it wasn't like you and I bathe ourselves today, like with products and stuff like that. It's not like that. It was really just a, it's kind of ceremonial. It represented the washing away physically of dirt, and now you are in a good place to come into the temple and be clean and holy. And there were very strict um, restrictions on that. But you baptized yourself. You cleaned yourself. So now John the Baptist is getting people to change their mind from we're in captivity to well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's why John the Baptist uses the word repent, because he wants people to change their mind about what they're thinking about in the kingdom of heaven is and how to get in there and when it's going to take place to say, It's coming, and the one that comes after me, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoe. 
And so people are really impacted by his teaching, and all of the religious leaders are saying, he didn't get clearance from us. This is a different teaching than what we're teaching. And so they started approaching him, and you can see that dissertation there in John chapter 1. You can see, who do men say that you are? And some say he's Elias, some say he's this, some say he's that. And it gets to the point where it's like, no, I am not the Messiah. I'm the one that comes before him. Bear with me just a moment here. And the Pharisees are like, this is not sanctioned. This is not endorsed by us. This threatens our power. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and immediately, immediately there in John chapter 1, he begins to call his disciples. And then in John chapter 2, he does his first public miracle. And from that point forward, the Pharisees had marked him as, this is a problem man. People got behind him, and there were several times where the culture got behind Jesus, and the culture's acceptance of Jesus stopped the Pharisees from trying to kill him. They say they would have put him away, but you see this phrase, out of fear of the people. What does that mean? That means that the Pharisees did what they really wanted to do. It would cause a riot by the people because the people accepted Jesus. And this went on for all of his ministry until he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He overturned those tables. He began to speak about you know, 40 and six years was this temple built, and in three days it'll be built again, and people were, you know, that was the only thing that someone brought against him. They brought false witness after false witness after false witness, and finally someone said, uh, basically, he's going to bomb the temple. Now, we understand what the true meaning of Jesus' statement there is. It's a little bit of a fast forward there in John chapter 2. He says he spoke about these things not concerning the temple, but his body, And we know from Hebrews, it says, a body hast thou prepared for me, the importance of the Son of God physically coming down to the earth, the incarnation of Christ. But you start to see all these things attacking Jesus because he claims to be the Son of God. Now, a moment ago, we just talked about Islam and how it rejects that Jesus is the Son of God because they say God has no Son. And there's a lot of stuff going around on social media where Islam apologists, which is, I didn't know there were that many people, but they're going on college campuses, and they're changing the mind of very weak Christians, and they're, they're using this statement, tell us where Jesus said he is the Christ. Tell us, tell us where Jesus said that he is God. There's several places in the scripture. Mary is one of those to confirm it, but also Jesus later, when he's talking to Martha, confirms it as well. But because Christians are weak, And that's the truth. A lot of believers are weak today. We kind of think Christmas, well, I don't want to say we, because that would include us here, but weak Christians kind of think that Christmas is just, oh, it's the birth of a king, which it is. I'm not rejecting that. But he was born to die first. He was born to make a payment for sin. That is hardly discussed around this time of year. And I think they go hand in hand. I know they go hand in hand because it's the very purpose that he came. But if you take away the fact that he's the son of God and you just say a, a, you know, a baby boy is, is born to be a king, what is special about that? It happens all the time. It happened thousands of times before Christ. Little boys were born into royalty and they'll be the king. If we just talk about that part, 
we miss the importance of he is God in the flesh who will die for sin, which will solve all of your problems and all of my problems. We'll still have physical problems here, but we will be in a right standing with God permanently. When you take that out, you take the power of the gospel away. And that's what's happening today. That is what's happening today. Now, I went out this, this week, and I got all my shopping done. And I was walking around, and I'm looking at people, and you can tell things are, are getting... We are descending further and further into a culture that idolizes self. I cannot tell you how many times... Well, I can. It was three. <laughs> three times I saw people rudely... I don't want to say viciously, but I thought it was vicious. Get in somebody else's personal space because they're getting something that they originally wanted. Someone did it to me. I'm, look, I, I'm, I'm a big guy, okay? Aisles and stuff, I usually let somebody else go first, especially when there's a bunch of product in the middle. Well, I waited on this lady, and she was, you know, using her phone and stuff, and I just waited and waited, and I figured, she doesn't know that I'm here. And so I decided to go, and she went at the same time, and our wheels of the cart, you know? And I look up, and I'm ready to apologize, and she's just so mad. Watch where you're going, blah, blah, blah. She literally has her phone up with social media, blah, 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 just talking to her. I I can hear it. It's as loud as I am right now. And I didn't even get a chance to say anything to her. She just angrily scooted out the way and went down the other aisle. And I thought, man, is is that a reflection of how everybody is today? Then I got to the register, and it's confirmed. It's really sad because you see people just doing their jobs. You know, self-checkout is a huge thing right now. But when self-checkout doesn't work, which is about eight out of ten times, (laughs) you need someone to come and help you. Well, I was in the actual lane. I wanted to give the person who was running the register a tract, and somebody was having a problem in self-checkout. And they literally, they threw their hands up, and slammed it on the little scanner. And I'm thinking, I don't see a stroller that they came in. They don't look like they wear diapers. I don't see a binky around their neck. Why are they acting like a baby? But they're, and, and this lady was so rude and so, just to the lady that was coming over, and you could tell that lady coming over, it was on her face. This was not the first time that's happened today and probably this week. I thought, what has happened to this holiday? Well, the problem is people have only celebrated it as a holiday. This is, it's just a time of year. This is when you try, you know, January comes around. All of y'all who, who uh, work in uh, businesses and stuff like that, you got to get your vacation in for next year now, right? And based on your tenure, you get a little bit of time. And that's about as much as, that's about the depth of what people think this holiday is. If we changed Christmas from a time of year to a way of life, we'll begin to change the culture. But until that happens, the devil's going to keep throwing all this stuff. He's going to keep throwing all this stuff at people. It's about the deals. It's about the opportunity for the deals. It's about the deals that are going to happen. And we just, we get caught up in it. Mary's prayer, Mary's statement here, shows you how she felt to be this chosen vessel. And like I said before, it doesn't say that, and Mary opened her mouth and prophesied, which would be God speaking through her. But in her statement, reflecting on the significance of what had happened to her, it ended up recorded in God's holy word, and it will never pass away. You know the significance of that? 
Surely she was blessed. Look in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. This is her song of praise. And the Catholic Church will read a verse here that will be used in the Catholic Church to prove that she was holy and blessed and stayed in you know, uh, virginity the rest of her life, but we know that that's not the case. And that's not the focus, but I just want you to see this is where they get a lot of that support from. But she says here in verse 46, And Mary said, <coughs> My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath both, excuse me, hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now I want you to take a moment there and just mark that. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to just softly underline that. I want you to have that ready and available as you study the rest of Luke. And we're not going to do that this morning, but as you study the rest of Luke, and you see the significance of Mary saying that God is her Savior. Now, this happened a couple of days after she was told, or excuse me, a couple of months after she was told that she was going to be the one who would bear the Messiah. Look with me in verse 26. Same, same book and chapter, Luke 1, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art, you should circle these things, that the angel Gabriel, may I have your eyes for just a second, Gabriel is a messenger from God. When Gabriel delivers news to humans, he is communicating on the behalf of God. This is not an independent thought of Gabriel. Why is that significant? This is what God told Gabriel to say to Mary about what he thinks about Mary. So when you say, so excuse me, when you read here Gabriel's statement, he's not independently saying, wow, you're a lucky gal. Wow, look at you. No, no, he's saying, you are highly favored. Look at what this says. The Lord is with thee, and mark this statement here, blessed art thou among women. Why is this significant? Well, the prophecies were known. Trent talked a little bit about this in his Sunday school. The prophecies were known about a coming Messiah. They believed a Messiah was going to come, but they believed that he was a political Messiah, because a lot of what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak about a Savior coming is to free Israel from what? Oppression, captivity. And in order to do that, you're not going to have someone that appeared like Jesus. You're going to have someone that appears like a ruler, a military man, someone of power and might and intelligence. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly how the Antichrist is going to propose himself? The Antichrist is going to come in great power and great military might. He's not going to have any kind of hobbies or special skills and abilities that people would say, oh, he does this in his free time. This man worships the God of might and strength. And the nation of Israel is going to accept him. Jesus came lowly in humility. Philippians 2 says he lowered himself and he was obedient even as a servant, even unto death. What political leader has any kind of strength that would give himself for his people? We don't see that today because there's no political leader who could even do any kind of benefit in giving their life. You understand what I'm saying? But she's blessed because she's going to bring about the only Messiah. 
but the nation was, miss, was going to miss it. Verse 29, she gets this announcement, and when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. I don't know if she was troubled at her, his presence, but what this angel Gabriel said to her troubled her. And she said, in her mind, what manner of salutation this should be. Basically, who greets me, Mary, like this? She was of no status, probably low on the social totem pole. And this angel appears to her and greets her in this way. It almost might be the, uh, do you mean that one over there? I'm Mary H. You're looking for Mary J. I don't know. <laughs> like, go over here. No, no. I'm looking for you. The angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, verse 30, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, and behold means to look, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. Stop for a moment. This description is very important to his purpose. What does it say? He shall be called the Son of the Highest. In other words, he will be called the what? Son of God. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. This is, we're, we're rewinding all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 about the promise made to the serpent there that the heel of the seed of the woman would crush his head. And then, Fast forward to Genesis chapter 12. Called Abram out of Ur and made a promise. Then in Genesis chapter 15, he says, I'm going to give you a seed because Abraham had said, I don't have any children and my wife is old. All this coming into fruition, the throne of David, all these different things to now, this is the moment. We are getting ready. The roller coaster has started its ascent. The throne of his father David and he, this son, which you shall bear, named Jesus, he shall reign over the house of Jacob, mark this please, forever. This is a kind of leadership politically that the world has not yet seen and will never see after. You think about all the great nations. They all had their beginning, their middle, and their end. The same for our great country. The beginning, middle, and end, I'm not trying to pinpoint where we are, but it's, this, this country is not going to be around forever. And aren't you thankful for it? I am thankful for this country, but I'm looking for Jesus. And I'm looking for his leadership. And I'm doing what I'm doing right now out of thanks to him, knowing that he will richly reward me, and I'll be able to rule and reign with him. That sounds like a plan. But sadly, people are trying to bring about a human utopia. It's not going to happen outside of Jesus. Folks, a human utopia is a contradiction. That is like saying the light is on and off. It is light and dark at the same time. It, it can't happen. You cannot have a utopia with humans involved. Look at what has been tried. Look at what's being tried right now. You think we're in a utopia in this country? <coughs> And we have the Bill of Rights, some, one of the greatest documents politically that's ever been written. We still have problems. Aren't you glad we're looking for Jesus Christ? And look what it says here uh, in verse uh, 33. 
and of his kingdom shall there be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, how shall this be? What is this? This is all those promises that were started with the statement, you're going to have a child. How is this possible, Mary says, when she says this next statement, seeing I know not a man. Now this is no in an intimate sexual way. She has not slept with a man, which is how you bring about children. How is that going to be possible if there's no one for her to be with? And she's espoused at this time. This is engaged, which was about a year long, and all the families are talking back and forth with one another. There's dowries being given and all that. (coughs) But she's remaining in purity. It's not like engagements today, where a lot of people are intimate with each other before marriage. That's not the expectation here of Mary. She had not been with Joseph. And we know this because other places in Scripture, Joseph, when he gets the news said to him, he's ready to put her away privately. And that doesn't mean he's going to end her life. What that means is he's going to break off the engagement. He's going to, this is done. Why? Because she has gone and been unfaithful. And he says, wasn't with me. But she asked this question. Good question, right? She's definitely paying attention. 35, here's the answer from Gabriel. And the angel answered and said unto her, (coughs) The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest. Now, I know this is a little bit of a weird detail, but notice highest is used again here. It's not the first time we saw it in this statement. It was used in verse 32. Look what it says there. Son of the highest. So there's no question, even in the announcement of Gabriel, who's God's messenger, of the birth of Jesus to Mary, she was bringing about the Son of God. It's not a new thing that Jesus started walking around and proclaiming himself to be the Messiah in the third part of his ministry. (coughs) But a lot of world religions say he never said he was the Son of God. Even in his announcement of his incarnation, the statement is there. The power of the highest, verse 35, shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called, ding, 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 what's it say? The Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. What a great statement in verse 37. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. You know, I, I, have a heart, I have a heart for couples that want to have children but can't. I, I, I understand that desire. And when I have an opportunity to minister to couples like that, it's almost as if I could put my hands on their shoulders and say, trust in the Lord. The greatest birth in all of history was on a woman who did not have children. Elizabeth, barren for all of her life. (coughs) She had John the Baptist. The power of prayer. Prayer to God, amen, is where the answer is. That was me and my wife for, you know, when we got married, I told her what what the condition was and, and how... There was not going to be an expectation for us to have children naturally. It was not possible. 
She was fine with that, but we prayed in the simplest of way. We said, this desire that we have to have children, we're going to take it and put it on you, Lord, and in your time. And now we've got that little girl down there. That's a testament to God's power and ability to answer prayer in his time. We waited 12 years. And folks, when that prayer was answered, we were not looking for the answer. We were ready to go to foster care, ready to go. We were one week away from going to the class when somebody (coughs) came into our lives and said, I'm going to take care of all of it and take care of all of the fees, which is a large amount of money. And now here we are. Literally about 10 months after that, little Remy was here. And what a blessing. There's nothing that I believe God cannot do except lie, (laughs) except be deceitful, except be unjust. But he can answer my prayer to have a child. And guess what? He did that for Elizabeth. And Gabriel uses it as a testament to Elizabeth was barren. Now she's going to have children. And you will have children the same. (coughs) Difference was that Elizabeth's child came by natural conception, but Mary was going to be this holy way. Now look in verse 46. She's made this statement. She's pondering now, similar to Hannah's prayer in 2 Samuel 2, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 2. 46 and 47, we read that. Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Now, the Catholic Church uses this as strength to say the Holy Mother of God. But you already know, Mary's view is she's blessed not because of who she is, but because God bestowed this gift upon her. Where is the power in Mary's statement? It's on the Lord. Where is the power in the Catholic Church? It's on the woman. It's on Mary. You know, I was not raised Catholic, but I had friends that were. And it always was weird to me that they prayed to Mary in order for God to hear their prayers. Then I came here to Calvary Community Church. I came to a Tuesday night class, and I read, I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, That there is one mediator between God and man. And it's not Mary. And I remember that hitting me like a ton of bricks. Have you ever had a moment like that where you're sitting in church and you hear something and it clears up what you had heard for years before that? It's almost as if you you could have seen the pew go, like rock back and forth from my shock. And I said, oh, this verse says so clearly that the only one who intercedes between God and man is Jesus. The Catholic Church says Mary does that role. So here I am in my pew thinking, I have a decision to make here. Am I going to believe the infallible word of God, hint, hint, infallible word of God, or am I going to believe the teachings of a man-made religion, which speaks some truth, but also has this truth about Mary that is now contradicting the word. I remember that day, because it's where I started to go, uh, the Bible speaks clearly where other places clearly lie. And this statement went back and forth in my mind, and when I studied this today, or excuse me, throughout this week, 
I thought, there it is again. She's blessed because of God bestowing this upon her, not because she's now in some elevated class of sainthood. Look at what it says in verse 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Now she switches here from glorifying the Lord for his power, holiness, and mercy, thanking him essentially for this bestowment upon her, to now switching to how God is going to reverse the political and social conditions of those who put their faith in him, specifically of Israel. Remember, Israel's in bondage. Excuse me, Roman oppression. All these things are going on. There's been 400 years, no prophets. This thing happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth. That was interesting. Now this statement of Mary is being made. People who are paying attention are seeing that prophecy is about to be fulfilled. He hath showed strength with his arm, 51. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen. Now, this is an interesting word. You don't see that most of the time today. But it means participated. He has participated in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. (coughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this, y'all. Hang on a sec. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It just happens, and it sticks there. <clears throat> I want you to pay attention to verse 55. We'll skip through for my voice here, but 55 says, As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. That's an interesting statement. Oh, thank you. Can you fill this up too, Jan? Oh, y'all going to get to hear this click clacking on these teeth. Wasn't that message where Jesse talked about Christmas? Yeah, I'll never forget it. My wife is probably cringing right now because she knows how I chew gum. I'm letting people know, I have gum. (laughs) Do you want a piece? (laughs) Um, As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to the promise that was first made back there in Genesis 12. Okay? Mary knows the fulfillment of that is beginning here. Now, look in John chapter 11. Fast forward. And there's a reason why I want to look in John chapter 11 here. Starting in verse 17, we'll we'll get there in just a moment. What has happened from this point where we just saw Mary's statement to where we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? A lot has happened. First of all, Jesus was born. That's significant. Herod, because he knew the statements that were going around about this king, this little boy king, he's like, oh, I want to see him. I want to spend some time with this guy. He wanted to kill him, and he persecuted the children of Israel. And, and this is a major uh, event that happens. It pushes Jesus and his family into Egypt to fulfill a prophecy about, I will call my son out of Egypt. All this has happened. Jesus has grown up. There's not much said about his 
teen years and young adult life. And I think that's for a reason, folks, because I don't want to say this in a blasphemous way. It's not as important as what God has chosen to reveal to us. I think it's interesting when you study some things in the Quran, they try to talk about Jesus and his childhood a little bit. And there's really no information on that, save some of the specific events, like when, they were, when he was 12, he went up to the temple, he was teaching, and then he stayed there. Mary and Joseph left, and they thought, oh my goodness, we, we left Jesus. So they go back, and he says, that, you know, I think Mary specifically says to him, you, what, um, what have you done to your mother and your father? Implying that Joseph is his father. And he says, the things that I'm doing, you have no knowledge of. My father is in heaven. And that starts to impact, Mary says, she pondered all those things privately, all those things that were said to her. Jesus grows up, the wedding at Cana happens, well, excuse me, John the Baptist happens, pronounces him, the baptism happens, Jesus starts doing his public ministry. Jesus now has been healing openly. People saw it, the loaves and the fishes. That got a lot of people to follow him. And in John chapter 6, Jesus makes some really uh, shocking statements because he's revealing what people are trusting in was not in him, but in, in his power and ability. Oh, this guy can feed a bunch of people out of just, you know, seven products. But people were still paying attention to him. And all this happened right before this event here. In John chapter 8, Jesus gets into one of the most heated and explosive discussions with the religious leaders. It's believed by many commentators after John chapter 8 is when they wanted to kill him. And they were saying, we're going to make this happen. Before, think of it kind of like an assassination attempt. It would be done and be like, oh, oh how'd this happen? But now they wanted to use their power to convict him. Lazarus dies. Lazarus close with Martha. Martha and Mary Magdalene, they're very, they're very sad about this. Jesus comes because he's about to do a miracle here. In verse 17, then Jesus came, uh, excuse me, then when Jesus came, he found that he, had all, that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, a lot of people would go, ooh, Martha, if you only knew who you were talking to. But this reveals what Martha already believes about Jesus. That he has power over death and over this separation. It's a physical power. We know later that she believed fully on him as the resurrection, not as someone who just performs resurrection, but as someone who is the resurrection and the life. But she says in verse 22, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She trusted that whatever Jesus was here to do, he's going to do it. Verse 23, Jesus, as the great teacher, makes a statement that induces a response to find where people are. One moment, second. As a teacher, I understand Jesus' approach here. 
you can tell people the right answer. And all they know is that you said it's the right answer. <laughs> and that only goes so far. That creates a leash between you and your student. As soon as the student is not on the leash of you being the one that gives the correct answer, they have no idea what they believe. This was me. I came to this church for a long time. And if someone were to ask me, why do you believe that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone? I would have said, that's what my church says. That's just what I've been raised to think. And people can get into that argument real quick and change your mind. Where's the power in that statement? Well, it's built off the word, but I'm trusting in a man who taught me. And Jesus says this statement to her to reveal what she already knows, verse 24. <coughs> Excuse me, Jesus said, Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Now, this is a double truth. Lazarus will rise again at the last day, which is described in John chapter 6. He's also going to rise from the dead physically on that day. Jesus makes this statement to reveal what does Martha think that statement means. Look at 24, her response. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, stop for just a moment here and look in John 6. Okay? Hold your spot. Go to John chapter 6. This is not on my notes here, but I want you to see it. Verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, he, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him. Now, may I have your eyes for a moment? If Martha said, yes. I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. I'm paraphrasing what she, what she said. What does that tell you about Lazarus? He believed on Jesus Christ. Not as a prophet. Not as a great healer. Not as a provider of earthly needs only. He believed that he's the son of God. Look at what this says. May have everlasting life. Hang on. Lazarus is dead. He'd been dead four days. The boy stinks because he's rotting away. How does he have everlasting life? This is some of the greatest proof that the guarantee of shall not perish in John 3.16 is not talking about earthly death. Physical death is talking about spiritual separation, which is death in a place called hell may have everlasting life, and I, Jesus, will raise him, the one that has believed, up at the last day. Back to John 11. You may say, what does this have to do with Christ being the Lord? I'm getting there. Look, this is what we're doing. And Jesus said unto her, sorry, let's look at Martha one more time. I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection. This is a very important statement. At the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. Why is this significant? There's a line that is being drawn here. It's not just the day, Martha. 
It's not just that he believed. I am that resurrection. The power is on me because I am the power. Chills. And the life. What kind of life? It has to be the everlasting life. He that believeth in me, (coughs) though he were dead, yet shall he what? But Lazarus is still dead. Nothing has happened to his physical condition. But he is spiritually alive and well. Waiting for the day when the resurrection happens and he gets a brand new resurrection body. Jesus makes that statement of fact. That's what that's called, an SOF. Statement of fact. Now he has the application of that fact in verse 26. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This is important. Whosoever liveth. We're not exactly sure if this means those who are alive here on the earth and believe, or is this speaking of the statement of the fact that they already have eternal life, so they're forever alive. I tend to believe that what Jesus is saying is, whosoever is alive here on the earth and believeth in me shall never die. The reason why I believe that's what he means is because he turns. By the way, you're watching, you are reading the clearest example in all of the Gospels as to what brings eternal life. It's even more clear than John 3.16. John 3.16 repeats this fact. Nicodemus is going, I I don't know. How can a man be born again when he is old? Martha already believes some things. Jesus makes this statement as a record that stands alone, stands the test of time. He turns that statement of fact in verse 25 to an application in verse 26, and he says, Martha, believest thou, and you got that one word, this. What is the content of this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and those who believe on him, though they are dead, they will live. Though they are physically gone, they are alive. I have great testimony here today. I could shout this from the mountaintops. My mother died 35, 36 years old, but... She's alive with the Lord right now. There is no greater comfort for me to know that truth. And it's not because I think, oh, how smart my mother was to trust on Christ. I say how good God is to offer Jesus. Because he's the only one that could give her that way, give her that life. My grandmother, she died in 2004. I love my grandmother. She is not with us anymore. Where is she? Because she's put her faith in Jesus Christ, she's with him. Though she's dead now, she lives. That is the most important fact of this statement here. Man is dead. Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. He's dead here, but he believed. He's got eternal life. Do you believe that? Notice Jesus is not trying to fix Lazarus right now. He's not trying to say, well, we got to get him out of purgatory. We got to make sure we pray, pray, pray him out. What's he saying? He's taken care of. How about you? What about you? You believe this about me? This is the focus of what we as Christians should be thinking on a daily basis. 
not just Christmas time. We should be thinking on a daily basis, those who are dead and gone, that's been all, that's been taken care of. There's nothing else that we can do. We're welcoming this person in. They were listening to the live stream and said, I want to be here right now. Welcome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but don't, don't lose sight of this fact here. Jesus is not dealing with those who are already dead. That's taken care of. He's dealing with Martha and he's saying, what do you believe about me? Now, the title of this message is Christ the Lord. We saw Mary's statement. We saw the angel Gabriel's statement about the son of the highest from the power of the highest. He will be called the son of God. Look at what this says, 27. She saith unto him. Now, this is a verbal profession of what she inwardly believes. The fact that she said this out loud does not save her. This reveals what she already believed. And I think it, you already know what she believes back in verse 21. Excuse me, uh, 22. I think we already know what she believed. But Jesus is saying this because I know, I know he knows it's going to stand the test of time. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, yes, Lord, <coughs> I believe that thou... Now, this is interesting. Art the what? This is a title. It's a Jewish title. You, Jesus, are that title. I believe it. Look at verse, look at the rest of the verse. The Son of God, bingo, you got it. Which should come into the world. Now look at chapter 20. Lazarus came back from the dead that day. Jesus probably about either two weeks after that event, or maybe sooner, died on the cross. John is concluding his book in chapter 20 in verse 30 and 31. Now you know this, I know you know this verse, and I know we've probably gone to it 50, 60 times this year alone. This year alone. But I want you to be able, what, what we do in this kind of Bible study is I tie a knot around a passage and I bring that thread over to another established truth for you to see. This verse here, John 20, 30-31, does not just stand alone. It ties other places together. And the thread that we're going to draw between Mary's prayer, the pronouncement of Gabriel, or the pronouncement from Gabriel to Mary, John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus being the light of the world, pulling it here to verse 30 in John 20, and many other signs... <coughs> truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And isn't it interesting? Everybody wants to find the things that are not in the Bible. How about we just let the Bible say what the Bible says and that be good, amen? But these are written that ye might believe, and you can almost put a little parenthesis here, not to add to the scripture, but to say, like Martha did, like Lazarus did, like Nicodemus did believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have what? We know this kind of life has been defined. It's not just deliverance here on earth, although that is something you can experience. However, the life that is talked about here is eternal life. Why? Because you have believed on Jesus as the Son of God, who has died on the cross to pay for sin. Now, we're going to wrap it up in 1 John chapter 5. 
Thank you for praying for me. Uh, my voice feels a little bit better. But I really want to get through this last part here. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. We know from verse 6 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is that witness. We know from Ephesians that the Holy Spirit indwells all those who believe. So when you believe on the Son of God, you have to witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son, which is evidenced by God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and it is only in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, just like Martha, just like Lazarus, just like Nicodemus, just like Abraham. It's only believe but very specifically, that he's the Son of God, which is the only person that could ever save us from our sins. It's not just you have faith that he's a good man, or that he's sent from God, or that he has elements of deity. He is God. That is the statement of, the, of life. And by believing on him, you have eternal life. That's what Christmas is about. James has done an excellent job with the choir, has he not? They were fantastic. Every one of those songs, even that little cute one. Boy, she nailed it. She nailed it. Even that testified to the statement of who he is. We are not celebrating just the birth of a king. We are celebrating the incarnation of the eternal one, the son of God, whose name is Jesus. That is what we're doing. And this is what you and I have to understand. We are representatives now. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors. We go bearing the banner of Christ. You have a great responsibility with this message. Please, don't let the taking down of all the decorations and the music going back to normal, don't let that be also your time to put away your faith. Don't let that be the time to say, until next year. Let it be something that lives on. Let it be something that we testify in the way that we pray for one another, in the way that we minister to one another, and also how we go out into this world and bring people the good news. I am passionate about this because it's the only reason I know why I'm going to heaven. I'm passionate about it because I know that anybody can come to this point of belief in Jesus Christ. But I also see how tricky and crafty the devil is to get whole religions to recognize Jesus and give him deity power, but deny him as the son. That is a doctrine of the devil. And I don't want that to happen to people that I come in contact with. You can close your Bibles. I pray you've been encouraged. What a great time it's been. Just in general, we've had a great time around here. I love the decorations. 
I love the graduation. I love the music. Boy, we had a barn burner on Wednesday night. That was just all capital letters fun. And I, you know what I'm excited about? That this time next week, we're not just going to be, you know, down and sad and mm, Christmas is over. We've got to wait all this time to be happy again. Every single time that these church doors open, it's a joyful time. We testify to the fact that Jesus has died for our sins. We now have life through him. We can pray and know that God hears us. What a great opportunity. Don't forget it. This hand right here, I'm going to explain how you can know you're going to heaven when you die. This hand represents you and me. This wallet represents sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God loves us, but he hates our sin because it separates us from him. In order to get to heaven, you have to be absolutely perfect, and we all fall short. That's why we're called sinners. That word sin means to miss the mark. It's not just about how much sin you have. It's the fact that you are a sinner that separates you from God. God, he loves us, but he hates our sin. It separates us from him to pay for it. We have to spend an eternity separated from God forever in a place called hell. Now, God, he loves us, but he does not accept any of our good works to get us to heaven. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, study, all those different things are not good enough to get you to heaven. The wages of sin is death, not good works. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the Son of the Highest, the Son of God, who loved us in the giving of his life. He went to the cross of Calvary. He took that sin, laid it upon himself, him being perfect, he made the only payment for sin, and he said, it is finished. In that very moment, all of sin was paid for. And it's explained in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice, whosoever believeth in him. That as the son of God, he shed his blood to pay for your sin. You believe on him, God gives you the free gift, free gift of everlasting life. You don't have to sign up for a free trial. You don't have to show that you really wanted it by coming to church next week. Oh, now you'll be saved because you came back. You can get saved right where you're sitting. You're the whosoever. When I was 12 years old, I was the whosoever. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I received everlasting life. And once I received that everlasting life, it's exactly as it's described. It never ends. It is eternal. I'm kept by the power of God. Not even myself could take away my salvation. I'm held by him. I hope if you're here today and you've not put your trust in Jesus, that there's enough here for you to change your mind and believe on him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Nobody looking around. If that's you today, say, Pastor, I came in today not knowing where I was going to go when I died. I'd say I'm a good person and I'm not as bad as other people, but I recognize that perfection is needed and I will never make that. So the best I know how I've put my trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for my sins on the cross of Calvary and rose again three days later. I would like to pray for you if that's you today. You only get saved once in your life because it's eternal life. It's not temporary probationary life. But if that's you today, say, I put my trust in Jesus I know I'm going to heaven. Would you raise your hand? And I'd like to pray for you. Anyone before we close? 
God bless you. God bless you. I hope all of those here in attendance today realize how great it is that a person has put their trust in Christ today. Anyone else before we close? Again, raising your hand doesn't save you. I'm not going to come down the aisle, tap you on the shoulder, nothing like that. I just want to pray for you. Before I pray for this one that's trusted Christ, would you praise the Lord? It's a good thing to be here today. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this one that has put their trust in you today. I pray that they have found a church home here at Calvary, but greater than that, Lord, they have a home in heaven now. Give them the strength of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Bible says the Holy Spirit indwells them right now. And thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of this. I pray for their protection. I pray for their growth. And I pray, Lord, that we as the local church can surround this individual and help them in their Christian life. Father, we now turn our attention to our responsibility and your greatness. I pray that we would not be weary in well-doing, but to be faithful ambassadors of this good news. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.